This is Taiwan Bound, the English language podcast of Tel Aviv University. Please welcome your host, Ido Aroni, Tel Aviv University's graduate, member of the Board of Governors, lecturer, writer, and veteran diplomat. Greetings from Tel Aviv. Uh, this is Ido Aroni, your host. Um, today we're happy to host for yet another episode of Taiwan Bound, Dr. Edith Adler. It's a pleasure to have you. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you for having me. And uh, for our viewers and listeners, I will say that you are a lecturer and researcher in the Department of Math, Science, and Technology Education in the Constantiner School of Education at Tel Aviv University. I happen to know the Constantiner family, very, very generous family, lovely people. And so it's uh, such a delight to have you here. And this is your home court. This is your, we're actually in your building, right? This is the building where you teach and you, you, you conduct your research. Right. This is my home in Tel Aviv University. So I went over your, your biography, which is really impressive. And, and you have so many interesting things in there. So first of all, your, your specialty, right? So you deal with biology and education, STEM and humanities, community engagement, the issue of belonging. You dealt with, um, Um, scientific issues such as uh, your your research dealt with the relationship between soft corals and their symbiotic algae right right that was my uh, master's degree right so you'll have to explain all of that to us <laughs> but before that <laughs> I know this sounds, I was, yeah <laughs> it sounds really complex but uh, but before that tell us about yourself um, I know I know you've been to uh, America for several years I know you spent time in Africa. Right. How did you end up doing all those exciting things? So I started actually my international experience since I was very young because we used to travel as a family. So I was I lived in Belgium and in Germany for several years as a, as a child. And I think that living abroad made me really wanting to know about other other cultures and other perspectives. So when I was a little adult in my later later years, and we had the opportunity of traveling to Africa. through my husband's work. And that was very exciting. Um, it meant moving for, to another country, which wasn't the Western world. What and part of, Afri of Africa? Spe specifically Kenya. We're in Kenya, okay. And actually we weren't situated in Nairobi, which is the, the, which is the capital, but we were situated in a small town called Naivasha, which is an agricultural town. Um, lots of, of, of people, lots of agriculture. And I think it was a wonderful experience. It's totally different than what I experienced as a child in Europe or in Israel. And that was wonderful. I just had my first child and we stayed there for, I stayed there for almost a year. In Kenya. In and Kenya. what brought you to Belgium and Germany as a child? So my father worked in high tech. And so just as today, high tech involves um, relocations, that was part of his work and our family traveled along with him. So you, you combine two passions of yours. One is the study of biology and nature, and then the other is, of course, the whole methodology of, of education. Tell us about your definition of the difference between education and learning. Uh, and I'll tell you why I'm asking this. I'm asking this because I've been teaching um, in universities in the United States and Israel since 2016. And before that, I lectured in tens of universities, mostly in, in North America, U.S. and Canada. And I noticed that, um, um, that many of the students are there because they're interested in getting a degree, which is um, almost a commodity, right? It's a credential. Right. It's, a, it's a credit system. Uh, less interested in learning. 
And I'm quite concerned about that, I must say, as a, as a, as a university lecturer. Yeah, I think, I think that education is, is get, getting the broad vision of what it means um, of what it means, like the theories, the underlying theories of teaching, of learning, having a broad vision of, of the methodologies involved. So that's the education. Whereas learning means the actual deed or act of sitting down, regulating your emotions and achieving, staying up on one goal and trying to do what you're supposed to, which is get all that into your mind and into your thinking and adapting to specific ways of thinking. Um, so that's like the actual practice, whether as education is more the broader. Now, thinking. if I understand correctly your, your research and your, and your work on the education, especially the stuff that you did with Michigan State, it has a lot to do with two things. First is engaging with the community. Right. Right. And the second is learning through experience. Right, exactly. And we put these things together. So the idea in the project in Michigan State was supporting students and become um, science-based citizens um, and specifically understanding how the relationship between their genes and their environment affect their health. And so we did this through working with the community and for the community. Now, when I mean with the community, that's the community part, the community engagement piece, that the community is actually part of our development process. So we're basing that on CBPR, which is Community-Based Participatory Research. It's a methodology from public health, and it's where you involve the community people in the design and development of research. So when we adapt this to the educational field, we actually wanted to pair up with the community and involve them throughout the process of curriculum development and implementation. So for example, we wanted to teach the big idea of gene-environment interaction. But we can teach that through any phenomena, right? But the community where, where we were situated in wanted to, uh, one of the um, challenges that they had was diabetes, specifically type 2 diabetes. So actually we had them, they wanted the students to learn about type 2. And type 2 diabetes is actually a wonderful phenomena in the sense that it involves our genes and our the environment and the interaction between the two. So the community was engaged within the curriculum development and then came to the classes and we had people that could talk to the students and then we had the students share with the community what they've learned. So that's the second part of the, uh, the process. With the community, meaning the community is helping us develop everything. And for the community, meaning that the students' understanding is geared toward helping and improving their community and they're working with communities members to do something and to improve their well-being. So it goes with with the community and for the community, and and uh, and that led you to think and devote some thinking and and research about the issue of of um, equality. Yes. Right. Of uh, of what is it that um, uh, what elements in a society in any given society determine whether people will have equal access to opportunity. Exactly, because what we saw, I think the project was very successful in, in many senses, right? The students were interested and they valued and they understood the meaning of science for their lives. But on the other hand, when we asked them about what they could do to improve, you see that most of their, their thinking was concentrated on what I can do as a person. And it's wonderful to think that you could go and buy healthier food and and be outdoors more and things like that. But there are structural things in our community that may 
interfere with that or may actually decrease our chances of being able to do all these things. And so that leads to, and I think one of the things we didn't push them far enough is understanding the structural inequities that are in there. And that what, that's what leads to their health. And so that's one of the things which I picked up and I really wanted to continue going on forward is that understanding. So it's like the science and the society piece and the biology all coming now together to move it a little bit more forward. So you say that inequity is systemic in some places? Yes. So, yeah. so would you say that when you're looking at what's happening in Israel today, this whole um, discussion about first Israel versus second Israel, which I think is a populist message that is targeting unjustly and unfairly the so-called elites, but that's my opinion. Um, where do you see those systemic inequities in Israel? So I think that the discourse today is kind of moving us away from thinking about how we can change the situation where we live. So there are things in our community that like access to healthy food, access to places outdoors, access to playgrounds, if you're talking about that and we're talking about youth then going on to different um, to, to take risks, which are unnecessary. So there are So when I talk about structures, I think that we could take our fundings, if we look from a policy, maybe I can talk more about education later, but and direct them towards those things that can support youth, in my opinion, but everybody in moving upwards. Um, but in education, and, and I see this also in education. So right. we have to invest more in education in some areas, because we want them to reach the same and have the same opportunities as others in in the in, yeah. in Israel. By the way, I remember when I when I served in Los Angeles in the mid 1990s. It was right after the Rodney King affair and the riots, and the mayor of Los Angeles at the time, uh, his name was Dick Reardon. He um, um, created a, a, an organization that was meant. It was actually like a think tank that was meant to to study why the riots erupted in those parts of L.A. Where, where it happened. And he appointed the deputy mayor, a woman by the name of Linda Griego, to run this thing, and it was called L.A. Works. And I remember having a meeting with her in, in which she showed me exactly what you're talking about. She showed me how in those areas where the riots erupted, there were no banks, for example, no ATMs, uh, very few supermarkets, uh, all the things that we take for granted. And now, of course, we know that if you have a Whole Foods in your neighborhood, it means that you're okay, right? right? It became like a, like a status symbol. Uh, but what can we do to improve that access to opportunity in Israel? Uh, and I'm not talking about necessarily the government. A lot of people think that the government is the problem. A lot of people think the government is the solution. Uh, but what, the th what are the things that we can do beyond government? I think that if you ask me from an educational perspective and from my work, I think we have to learn to, to work together. So I think that if we look at those inequities, and I do work about inequities from science education perspective, and I have other colleagues in the School of Education who do wonderful work and addressing inequities from an educational perspective, not necessarily science, involving science. And then I have other colleagues in Tel Aviv University, other universities addressing this from a public health perspective or from environmental perspective. But I think that once we work separately, we, we can't really get, and social work, and we can't really get to 
a solution. And I think in order to get the solution, just as the story you've, you've just addressed, I think it takes all the minds and all the different perspectives together and think how we can do something holistic that will involve all those different perspectives. And I think another important aspect of that is that we, the academy will not be able to solve this by their own. So we need the academic, we need the theories, but we also need the community members. We need the local people to tell us, okay, this would work, this wouldn't work. I mean, sometimes when I come to a specific community, I'm not necessarily part myself of that specific community. And I need to understand their perspective, which might be different from my perspective, and I might not necessarily agree with, agree with everything that they think, but once we, we try to collaborate and work it out together, I think eventually we get to some more idea of what we can actually do. And in terms of sustainability also, because that's a big issue in academics, right? Because we come in with, we have the fundings and we conduct the research and we're, everybody is there. The focus is on that specific community or research. But once we're out, sometimes and very thoroughly, those ideas just fade away. So I think we have to learn to work together from multiple perspectives and also use members of the community, community-based organizations, national organizations, governmental agencies, all these have to come together to the table and address them from their different perspectives. So you're talking about creating a coalition and a partnership and creating also, I think this is the key really, uh, what we call in diplomacy win-win, meaning that all elements in the coalition feel that there's something in, it, in there for them. So they're gaining they're benefiting from it. Exactly, because the we, when we come together, and I've seen it in the in MSU, the, the work we've done in the United States, I see it now in a project we're trying to work out with Ben Guyon University in the South. People have different interests, and it's wonderful for them to have different interests. But when you come together, people have to, just like you said, win-win. I need my interest, and they need their, and we have to create this mutual agenda in which we can address all these issues and everybody feels that their voice is heard, that their perspective is there, that they get from the coalition or collaboration, whatever they want. And that pushes it. I mean, then it's a win-win, it's a synergetic and it moves it forward. Now, I saw in your biography also um, a strong emphasis on the education towards better citizenship, citizenship, people to be to teach or to educate people or to train people to think differently about what does it mean to be, be a citizen. Right. A citizen meaning uh, to be part of a social contract, right? There's a there's a deal. The deal basically, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not, I'm not a, a scholar on this issue. I'm not a scholar at all, but um, this is the contract, right? The government says to you, the state or... Um, you, we will provide you with adequate health, safety, education, uh, infrastructure. You, in return, will have to be law-abiding, tax-paying, productive citizen. This is the, the social contract, right? This is the deal. right? And um, so now we find ourselves in a situation in Israel, which I'm hoping you'll be able to explain how we got here, <laughs> where there's a big chunk of well-meaning Israelis. I'm not talking about the messianics. I'm not talking about the religious extremists. I'm not talking about the ultra-Orthodox that, that I think are in it just for the ride. They're in it just for the budgets. They really don't care about democracy. But there's a big chunk of well-meaning Israelis that don't truly understand 
what democracy is all about. Right. How did we end up here? I think that sometimes when we teach in schools, things are, we teach, okay, we teach science, and then we teach social studies, and then we, see, we teach citizenship, and then we teach all those different subjects, but they're, diff, they're not connected to each other in different drawers in the, in the brain. Right, and so, so we put them in silos. In silos, exactly. But the idea, I think, and, and I think it's something that the academy has been doing, right, like biochemistry and, and combining different fields together. So I think you have to start in, in the schools already and not work by those silos, but combine this. So I understand the science behind something. And then when I talk about citizens, citizenship, I need the teacher and the people from the citizenship education to come in and give their perspective about what is democracy. What are the tools that I have as a citizen? How can I move forward whatever my, my needs and what I want to achieve and not just, okay, I know what I want and just move forward no matter how. So I need those people. I need the people from history to tell me what happened in history. I need people from geography. So I, I think that, and we talk a lot about in education about project-based learning and inquiry-based learning. So I think that might be a wonderful framework to put all these things together and think about interdisciplinary education within our schools that will bring together, just as we were talking before, you know, outside of schools, but also inside of schools, bringing together those different perspectives and understanding the limitations also. So there are also limitations to what we can do. So there's things that we want to do. There's ways of how we can do it, but there's also limitations of what we, we can achieve. But I think understanding the whole pictures, as long as we teach in different silos and do not do those connections. So you're, you're proposing actually to do something that is called cross-referencing, right, between, in, yeah. between the, 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 the various fields. Now, it seems to me that um, young people um, reach very quickly because of their access to uh, information through the smartphone and the tablets and so on. They potentially could reach the level of oversaturation very quickly of information. We call it information overload. Mm -hmm. And that leads them to um, adopt a very um, black and white picture of reality, either good versus evil or simplicity that always overrides complexity, the inability to handle nuance, the inability. And we see that on campus. And there's a famous book written by Jonathan Haidt called The Coddling of the American Mind which begins to track this from 2013, how, how Gen Z students come to campus and all of a sudden they, they, become, you know, they become obsessed with safetyism, but it's not about physical right. safety, right? They're afraid of words. They're afraid of ideas. And I, and I encountered it myself as a, as a lecturer. Uh, what do you think can be done to fix that? Because I think it's, it's horrible. I think it's the end of science. I think, I think bringing... And again, I'm on the same line of thinking. If we have di diversity within our schools, within education, within our higher ed systems, and you hear the different people, then and, and you, you create those safe spaces where I can say what I think and you can say what we think and we really can conduct a discussion about the different ideas and maybe look at different narratives and think how the different narratives we don't have to agree with all those different narratives, but we have to start understanding other people's narratives, other people's perspectives, and try and combine them together. And I think it also has to do with critical thinking, because we really have to teach people, I can say in science education, but I 
I can say I can broaden up to to the entire educational field, critical thinking and 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 trying to understand and talk about those things, not being afraid, and some of it has to do with the teachers because when we talk about those different things, we have teachers in the classes, and you, what you're suggesting or we're suggesting is kind of changing teachers' role also from just just only being a science teachers to being something which is a more social role in the society. And so we have lots of work to do with our teachers as well. Right. And they understand. Well, I think we have an advantage in Israel, which uh, American private universities don't have. And the fact that we are not, um, this is not a a financial transaction. So what happens, I think you, I agree with you, what happens in America in private universities, especially in elite private universities where kids, parents pay $60,000, $70,000 a year tuition, uh, they feel they're in a position to tell the, the, the teachers, the lecturers, what to say. And if their children don't feel safe, if they're threatened by a word, uh, they have no, po- no, no problem whatsoever to demand the dismissal of that professor. And, uh, and of course, there's, there are really horror stories about uh, people that sent innocent emails and got fired um, and things of that nature, all because of it. And, of course, uh, you know, to go back to Jonathan Haidt's um, analysis, it's a combination of many things, of overprotective parenting style, uh, bureaucracy that is, doesn't know what to do with this new generation that came in, and, of course, the rise of social media. How can we use social media to turn people into better citizens? I think social, uh, I think social media could be a wonderful, pla- wonderful platform, but it has to be really. So it's, I think it's, it, it's on two sides. It has to be used, used very, in a, in a wise way. So one of the things is that today kids look at the social media and whatever is on the social media, they just accept it as a truth, which is something that it. And today we know with all the fake news and other things going around in social media, which is, is, so we have to start teaching the students how to be wise consumers of knowledge, whether it's in any other, in any field, both on social media, on the internet, wherever we go, understanding that people are using different types of strategies on us as consumers. And once we understand those strategies, we can start and thinking about how we start consuming the media in a better way. Let me ask you, uh, before we conclude, um, let me ask you a question which is a, a bit philosophical, right? When we're talking about equality, obviously, we would like to give people equal opportunity, but we also realize at the same time that we're not all equal, right? In terms of our capacities, in terms of our talents, in terms of everything, you know, people are different. Every person is a, as we say, is a, is a whole universe, right? Olam right. umlo. Um, so I've noticed that there's a tendency in some places to, to take the issue of equality and to measure it according to outcome and not according to intent. And I, th- and I think, again, as, as someone who has over 30 years of experience in North America, especially in the United States, and I've lived and studied in Boston, L.A., New York. I spent significant time in, in Florida. And so I have a perspective. And I think that's, that's, that's uh, it's a very fine line that many people, including academics, don't, don't see. 
I, I think there's another thing in that is that we start sometimes we look at equality as lowering the bar and making things easier for some of our kids again starting in in in, in schools right, right. and I think that it cannot happen we have to keep the bar up we have to keep it up the, the idea is how do we get the kids who have had low fewer opportunities to get to that bar so if I go back to one of my areas of of research which is which is constructivist learning and scaffold how do we support and how do teachers support the kids in reaching the, the high bars I, I want them to excel I want all the students no matter where they are and where they are from to excel and get to the same as much as they came to the same standards but their way to achieve that will be very different and we have to keep that in mind when we think about the kids when we evaluate the kids when we evaluate the teachers i know in the u.s the evaluation of teachers is a big thing in israel too but it's a little bit different because of the system we have to take also in consideration the 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 efforts that teachers have done when in trying to not lower the bar and make things easier but instead keeping it out high and getting the kids to that bar and that has to take that has to be really taken into consideration when we evaluate either the students or their teachers. And it's interesting, I totally agree with you that those reinforcements are needed. Uh, but again, based on my experience, both in North America and in Israel, and in Israel, obviously, most higher learning institutions are public, that public institutions have a built-in advantage right. over private institutions in this department. And that's why the scholarships for students are super, super important. Scholarships that will enable them to overcome those big gaps or cultural difference, differences that because of them, of them, they are not able to be tested by the same um, ways of assessment that you assess other students. And I think those are critical because now in the news we're talking about the scholarships and different. I think those are critical because if you want everybody and if we want a society that has all the different people and all the different voices and not because that's us that's a diversity and that's what i think is so beautiful about the israeli society but we need to support the people the different people in getting there and scholarships and this year of gap between the school and and before the university are super critical for that purpose exactly now let me ask you one last question because we really have to finish um about high school. When I was a student here, um, which was in the early 1980s, uh, we studied the, the writings of a, of a very famous American sociologist by the name of Randall Collins, who wrote in 1979 a book called The Credential Society, which was a very critical analysis of how academic degrees became, as I said before, a transactional thing. But what he expressed uh, was concern with the devaluation of the high school diploma, right? He said back in the day, like for example, my parents, my father, his generation, my father was born 1926. When, when he was at the age where we usually would go to college, he never thought about going to college. Uh, it was uh, something, uh, it was a luxury. He was very happy and proud of his high school diploma. And, and I know that you, you as a young uh, person, you were active with the Society for the Preservation of Natural Life in Israel. Right. So you should know my father was one of the founders of, of that society. And he was a very learned person. He wrote books. He acquired tremendous knowledge, but he never had any academic recognition. 
and he was very proud of his high school diploma. How do we, how do we fix that, the devaluation of the high school diploma? I think that when we talked before about bringing the different voices together and we talked about the need to bring academics, but also appreciate the knowledge of people who are not academics. And they have wonderful knowledge. They have wonderful practices that, has, um, that they've earned throughout the different years. So I think that whenever we want to do anything and push everything forward, we have to look also at our academic knowledge and our cultural, social knowledge that exists in the community and put these things together. Now, there are sometimes there are very different types of knowledge. This is more general. This is more practical. This is too specific. And this is this is non-specific. But we have to find the ways to bring these together because I think the, the, the knowledge that people, that just like your father or other people have, is valuable. And they know things that the, the theories might not account for. And putting those types of two types of knowledges together could be wonderful and bring well, and and, and and on this optimistic note uh we really because you really you are depicting a very optimistic future that it is possible i think so but with the, lots of efforts with lots of efforts and lots of goodwill and i think you're talking about the key is really to create a collaborative effort so many many elements in the system are part of that including the government whether including. we like the government or not doesn't yeah. matter and I'd like to thank you for your optimism. Thank you very much for having me. And I'd like to thank you for educating us about this very, very important issue. And hopefully we'll get to talk to you again. Thank you very much. And to our viewers and listeners back home, greetings from Tel Aviv until the next episode. Goodbye. <laughs>